Come home, I beg you. It's not your fault. Then why are you punishing me? I'm not. And your sister and your mother? Listen, darling, I cannot break up my family. I cannot. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 156 today and we are back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I picked Monsoon Wedding from 2001, directed by Mira Nair and written by Sabrina Dewan. It stars Nasiruddin Shah, Lilette Dubey, Shefali Shah, and Vasundara Das. In the film, we explore the multi-day series of preparations and festivities in the build-up to an arranged marriage wedding in Delhi. All the family is coming together, and there are a lot of storylines happening simultaneously as relationships are formed and tested and even broken. So unlike my 20th century, which we discussed in the last episode, I vividly remember the impact this film made. Maybe because Salam Bombay was such a big deal, I'd also seen Mississippi Masala and Kama Sutra before this and also the Perez family, and Hysterical Blindness, I didn't realize a lot of those were Miranair films. And she just keeps on going. Vanity Fair, Queen of Cotway, The Namesake, for example. Well, I've had significantly less experience with her work than you have, it seems like. I've seen Mississippi Masala and Kama Sutra and some of the documentary stuff, and that's it. And I really didn't know what to expect going into this because it seems so different from everything she had done before. It didn't help for this viewing that I started off stressed out and not in a good mood. We're going through the preliminary steps of reopening the library to the public right now. So we're dealing with a lot of stuff currently. That had me a little distracted. And then I realized I also kind of associated this with that late 90s, early 2000s time period of Weinstein-y, modest indie successes. And that time period is pretty hit and miss for me with films of this level. I should clarify, this was made by Mira Bai, her production company, not Mira Max. So the similarity of name may be why I'm thinking of these things. But you know what I mean, right? The way this slots in with the English patient, Chocolat, City of God, the way those studios were capitalizing on turning these foreign films into mid-level prestige moneymakers. That's how I thought of it. I even think of something like Shakespeare in Love, you know, things that got big press and were beloved. So you've seen less Mirinaire. How would you, though, characterize your experience with Indian cinema in general? I'm thinking the Opu trilogy, Cinema Travelers that we've talked about, Ega, which is the Revenge of the Reincarnated Fly movie, a tiny amount of Bollywood. That's my experience. Other than that, I feel like I don't have a good handle on the industry as a whole, and it's a gigantic industry. Yeah, gigantic may not even be enough. Mammoth industry, I would say. Moderate is how I would describe my experience with it, probably more than the average cinema goer, 
but not as extensive as my experience with other cultures like Japan, for example. We've seen a lot of Sariajit Ray, obviously some big titles in our library here like Kaga's Kefool, some Bollywood musicals, a bunch of the more outlandish crime and action films. That's my viewing experience so far, but there's always room for more. Either way, speaking of Aparajito, part of the Opu trilogy, this film won the Golden Lion, and Marinera was only the second Indian director to do that. That's kind of a surprise, because in the 50s through the 60s, Indian films ruled festivals, it seemed like. There was a good decade-ish stretch where they really were all over the place at Cannes, for instance. Yeah, and then 50 years go by before another Indian director wins. And I've never been to India, so I rely on these films to bring the country to life for me, which certainly Miranair is a great person to do that. So the wedding of the title is the centerpiece of the story. Did you have impressions going in about what a traditional Indian wedding is like? And have you ever been to one? I haven't been to one, but I have a couple of friends who have had them, one here in Texas and one actually in India, and I've seen their photographs. So I had a bit of an idea as to what to expect regarding the preparations and the ceremony. The pictures I saw, especially from the ceremony that was held in India, make it seem like a riot of color and bodies in motion. Overwhelming almost. Like the photos couldn't even capture everything in the frame. Like it was bursting out of the edges of the photo. It's a kind of a similar experience for me. I had an acquaintance who was a bride in one. This happened stateside. So I just got to see her social media pictures. And then a former work colleague of mine is Indian, and her family held a traditional gigantic wedding in San Antonio. And like you said, I think it's just an overwhelming deluge for the senses. A monsoon, would you say? Uh, pun intended. So just so you know, the traditional Indian wedding itself is three separate events. You've got the Sangeet, which we see, the Mahindi, which is a ceremony, and then the reception celebration. Well, this also got me thinking about big old gigantic American weddings. I've never been to one of those either. Ever since your family crossed the Rockefellers, you've been off that social list? (laughs) I guess so. Every wedding that I've been has been in a church basement or VFW hall, basically. So are you ready to get into this film? Yeah, let's do it. Well, the very first moments are dominated by music. And I happened to listen to you watch this from another room, and it sounded like a party from start to finish. What do you think about the music? The use of music in this thing is brilliant. The way it sets the mood is so perfect all the way throughout. Such beautiful songs. And I think the thing that really affected me the most was the juxtaposition of traditional music with their contemporary pop music. That was especially effective. I don't know the songs as well as I know American pop music, obviously, but even with that, you can feel how Wes Anderson perfect some of these needle drops are. That's how perfectly the sounds are paired with what's happening on screen. You can feel that without even knowing the language. It's universal. And these opening credits are also incredibly delightful because there's so much color and there's no straight line anywhere, which I like. All sorts of cultures are coming together with the blending of these two families. The bride, Aditi, is a modern young woman. She's having an affair with a married man. Her cousin Rhea is constantly asked when she's going to be married. The father, Lalit, is running into a massive debt to pay for this wedding. We've got one son who wants to work on his dance moves, and that's it. 
The other son just wants to be back in a bar in Melbourne. The groove-to-be, him that, he has come from Houston. He's been working in tech there for a number of years. And the couple will be returning to the U.S. to live. He hasn't been back to Delhi for years. We've also got the honored protector of the family. This is the brother-in-law. He's coming. And then the super saucy auntie and uncle. I love them. And then about a hundred other people. The vibe is definitely everyone get married. Everyone have kids immediately. So we have all of these sprawling scenes and introductions and cacophony and layers upon layers of history and duty and success and failure, everything. And I've read comparisons to Altman films with the sprawling number of characters and stories, simultaneous action and conversations. Do you see that? And do you see any other comparisons that you think are noteworthy? I have a very specific feeling about Altman, and I don't really see that here. For me, Altman is about fuzzy boundaries and the way all of that activity overlaps in an indistinct way. I see her as maybe more like Ang Lee or Wes Anderson, who handles similar large ensemble pieces, but with more precision. Ah, interesting. Okay, I hadn't thought of that. This isn't muddled enough to be Altman for me, or even Paul Thomas Anderson, for that matter. It reminded me quite a bit of Shakespeare, even, if we want to go for more precision in how things are handled with a big dose of, say, A Midsummer Night's Dream or even The Tempest. Actually, what I see her doing here is more with genres that she upends rather than having similarities to individual filmmakers. The character of Dubay is a perfect example. He is straight out of both the Asian comic tradition and a fixture in comedies and manners from all cultures. But in almost every other film like this, that character would be consigned to the fast-talking, mugging comic relief, and that's where they would stay for the entirety of the film. In this case, though, he gets to grow so much beyond that. Can you imagine in Father of the Bride, if Martin Short's character was given a significant and touching storyline that was competitive with the actual wedding storyline? She goes way beyond convention with this. So the wedding is also doing battle with the rains and the frequent power outages. And there's also some hints that we start to see of family conflict. This revered protector, brother-in-law, uncle, he's offering to pay for Rhea's education outside of India. And Lalit is so grateful for this, but Rhea does not seem to be. So we're not sure what's happening yet. But still, all the preparations are coming together, everything's being worked on down to the last detail. This amazing spectacle is starting to rise. So I think it's a good time. You want to talk about the colors and the marigolds? These marigolds are amazing. This is such a distinct color. I will forever associate that color with this movie. And I can't think of very many movies that when you just say, oh, here, look at this particular color, it immediately calls that specific film to mind. But this is one of those. And Dubay absentmindedly eating one anytime he is experiencing a moment of happiness is such a great image. And it makes complete sense as an expression of joy. Of course you would want to consume something so beautiful and carry it within you. Have you ever eaten marigolds? I haven't. This is what I learned in this movie. All marigolds are edible. Even calendula, which is in the marigold family, which I love. I've had other edible flowers, but not marigolds. There are tons of recipes, though, for ways to use them. So I really need to add that to our summertime cooking menu coming up. Good plan. And I love Dubay doing this, too, because he's the mirror of his love, Alice. She's the other person who eats the marigolds. 
I did see one instance of a lotus, which is the national flower of India, but just that one. Otherwise, we're dominated by marigolds. And so I was reading a little bit about the significance of them. Hindus wear them for basically all ceremonial occasions. And there's a significance to the different colors as well. So white is for purity and peace. The more saffron, the softer orange color, that's the sacred color. Bright orange is for courage and sacrifice, and yellow is for sanctity. And a big moment of the celebration at the end is wearing the garlands, passing those to each other, and that's a sign of respect and protection when you give them to welcomed visitors, and so you'll see them all the time. Now, I know that you're not a big group joiner. We've talked about this on the show. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> you don't do big family things. Your family doesn't do gigantic things that you're invited to. So did you find a way into this film or did you just want to throw up the whole time? I was really afraid that this was going to be a tough one for me. I think I found my way into it accidentally or almost in spite of myself. I think it happened because we may give a film more leeway if it comes from another culture other than our own, even other Anglo cultures, I feel like. I thought you were going to say it's because all the women are gorgeous. That is true. Every generation, every woman on screen, the men too, everyone is beautiful in this. Yeah, yeah. But I know I do that. I probably give it more room if it's not an American film. So as a result, there's this buffer of cultural difference that engages my curiosity and it occupies me with trying to understand those differences rather than just being annoyed like I might be at some banal American movie. And then the straddling of cultures here gives me something to chew on as well. Even something as simple as this liberal inclusion of English as a spoken language. Do you think that was a commercial consideration? No, I think that's incredibly common. And as for dealing with the rest of it, you said it, family is everywhere, inescapable. And in these situations in movies, it's presented like it's cute or funny instead of an absolute living hell. <laughs> Hence my vomit question. So it's a good thing for my sanity that the relationships here, they feel very real and lived in and loving. It's kind of chaotic, like you said, to begin with, with everyone assembling for this big day. So I think you're right to wonder whether or not I was going to make it. On paper, you're absolutely right. The setting for this, this is a nightmare scenario for me. It says a lot for the film that I found it so enjoyable considering how many strikes it potentially had against it for me. I am anti-wedding, or at least the racket of the wedding industrial complex. Because we got married at a courthouse, it took two minutes. Yeah, I don't think there is anything funny about these gangsters that charge people that much for putting flowers in mason jars and charging you triple the price of catering because people are held hostage to this idea that this is how it has to be done. What about handcrafted signature artisanal <laughs> lemonades? That actually sounds pretty good right it now. It does sound good. And bigger weddings, at least, they just don't generally make sense to me. It's kind of a vain exercise, I feel like. A big, come look at my thing thing. Because if you have a wedding of any size, you're not getting meaningful time with your guests, I don't think. Say you have 100 people. Is that a decent number for what you would call a big wedding? Yeah, that would probably be about the minimum for a very large wedding. And how long would you stay at a reception? A couple of hours? Yeah, that's probably plenty. So you have 100 people. They're spending a couple hours. That is 
one minute and 12 seconds per guest that you would get to spend. Are you getting quality time there? No, you're not. So have smaller, more meaningful celebrations and more of them. You can do that. I'm here once again to tell people you don't have to do this the way everybody tells you you have to do it. I do want to say that this is not specifically a cultural thing. I mean, we see this around the world as a concept. Yeah, and I just come back to if it's really about being with those people in your life, I don't believe that. It's about all sorts of other things. The vanity I mentioned, something like we see here, familial and societal pressures, which is something I've simply never cared about. We've been together eight years and we haven't been to a single wedding in the whole time, and I assume we never will. Maybe 50-50 if my sister gets married, but she wouldn't do some big ridiculous thing either. So obviously, I have a bias coming into this. Now I should clarify, because I think sometimes people don't actually listen to the carefully chosen words. In the same way that people confuse me saying that I don't want kids for I don't like kids, me being anti-wedding does not mean that I'm anti-marriage, and I'm really intrigued by the evolution of the institution as a whole. We obviously participate in it. And in this particular case, we are still dealing with arranged marriages. Marriages for love in the larger spectrum of history, that's an idea that's still in its relative infancy, or at least very much in a minority when you look at everything throughout time. And when you look at it objectively, it is an absolutely irrational notion to bind yourself to someone for these emotional reasons. So I agree with what they're saying here to a degree. Arrangement is just as good a reason as any other to take part in this. Maybe better in some cases. And the most interesting thing to me as far as a character touch, arrangement does introduce an element that I think we might not see otherwise. It cloaks Aditi's hesitation, her motivation to rethink everything. Because I'm wondering this whole time, why does no one pick up on her reluctance? And I think maybe that's because they chalk it up to their own reluctance that they overcame in relation to their arrangements. Do you know anyone who's had an arranged marriage? Right offhand, I can't think of anyone, but I guarantee I do. I'm sure probably a friend of mine. This is a contemporary arranged marriage. She is an American. Her grandmother was Indian, and she decided she wanted to go to India to experience the culture. And she also decided when she was there that she wanted to get married. So she went through this whole process. I think that she spent about an hour and a half with her husband-to-be prior to the marriage. Hmm. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. So in general, I'm with you basically with the large gatherings. My family is not a big family, but this is reminiscent of some of the gatherings that we've had. And I think just because we're just loud in general. So there's something that gives me good memories. I want to address one very specific person right now. You out there who is at the wedding and does that thing where you point to the unmarried couple and says, you guys are next. Stop doing that. Yeah. No one likes it. No kidding. You should have to reveal whatever dark secret is in your past that makes you say things like that. So take that, Mima. <laughs> my Mima never did anything like that. And speaking of Mima's, this stuff for my family has largely gone away because people are just not around anymore. So no more card parties, no more reunions. And it does make me a little bit sad. Did you participate in those things as a youngster? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was required to, basically. I got in the car and I have to go wherever the car takes me. 
But here it is pretty heartwarming, and maybe that's just because of that beautiful refrain at the end that Miranair puts in here for my family. So family in all its glory is the reason for the story. I'm still just glad I don't have to be a part of a big family. Well, these family gatherings, these huge sprawling things, sometimes it's not all good times. They give you as many openings for drama as they do comedy, and Mira Nair, she frequently gravitates to class issues. So we get examinations of the part of the family that has money and the complication and resentments that that breeds. The prospective groom, you mentioned that he lives in Texas and there's the prominent use of English. So there are these implications surrounding maintaining identity and culture. They even briefly make little jokes poking fun at the stereotypes of Punjabi culture versus Bengali culture. The servant Alice and her aspirations, there's a whole can of worms to address with those class dynamics as well. And if all that weren't enough, there also turns out to be that thing that you hinted at just a little bit ago. There's something more sinister in those looks around the dinner table as well. There's the specter of impropriety with this young girl that arises and eventually the truth comes out and it is very ugly about the benefactor, Uncle Tej. So obviously, there is a lot more going on here than just feel-good movie and celebration. This is very deep and multifaceted. I personally really like the scene when Himnat is asking Aditi, what do you think it's going to be like when we're in America? How will it be for you? No friends, no family, which is all that you have here. And I think it's a great question. I can personally relate to it. And as you mentioned earlier, she's going to be fine. Everyone will be fine. Everyone in the world, hearing my voice, needs to understand they will be fine. And I think one of my favorite musical choices is during the party to get her henna work done. That song is beautiful. But we can see Aditi is pretty reluctantly participating, as you mentioned. And for all of that effort and expense, her father is massively in debt. He has to ask for money from friends and associates. That's a big deal. And that's also a big cultural thing that U.S. audiences might not get because that being poor and in debt, that goes all the way back to the partition. This is a big deal. They were penniless. And so this implied obligation to Uncle Tej is even more massive than we can imagine. Going way back to Mississippi Masala, I hope everybody watches that. The whole story of the Ugandan refugee part of that, I love that aspect to that story. But anyway... Back to this whole storyline with Rhea and Tej, she reveals she was sexually abused by him as a young girl. Nobody was there to stop it. So, when this big revelation comes at the Sangeet, which is that event before the wedding, it's the music night, the musical party, it's supposed to be this giant celebration, and it turns so sad and ugly. Some of the family doesn't believe it, and she takes refuge with some friends of hers. Now, in the meantime, there's all sorts of other nighttime intrigue and some banging. That's Aditi <laughs> hooking back up with her ex. The police discover them, and she flees back home. So this leads to a big turning point here. She wants to confess everything to her fiancé so that they can start fresh. How's he going to take it? How does Lalit take the news that this girl that he raised as a daughter was abused by the man who has done so much for his family? So how do you feel that the groom-to-be and the father handled this major news that was dropped on them? 
I think it's handled brilliantly, especially in the case of the groom-to-be. Like you say, Aditi sneaks out to meet her former lover. That tryst does not end well. But all of that really makes sense. She's in her early 20s, and she is faced with this life-altering arrangement. I think about myself at 24, and I would have been confused by all of this swirling around and what I wanted, but she does the right thing. She delivers this news honestly, and he is reasonably upset, but he is not out of line to think, I've come all the way for this. What have I gotten myself into? Are things over before they even start? But I think her admission, it makes her feel trustworthy. And the movie's strongest suit is really boiling things down to the straightforward and the plain spoken. Because he says in response to this, what marriage isn't a risk? So as a result of all this, the way they're handling it, I do want them to succeed. Specifically because of the people they are demonstrating that they are. They are honest and realistic and smart. And I think when you see them actually start to fall in at least some lust with each other, it actually feels very earned and tender. And then in keeping with the plain spoken part of things, on the father's side of that bad news, when he talks about this feeling of looking upon your children with a love that you almost cannot bear, I absolutely understand and believe what he's feeling, even though I do not have children of my own. His handling of things is a little more complicated, though, because between husband and wife-to-be, it's just the two of them that have to deal with this. This thing that Lalit is dealing with it infects the whole family. But eventually, it takes him a little longer because he has to weigh all of these variables. He also does the right thing and stands up for these women that he loves and wants to protect. Now, throughout the film, we have these deeply emotional family scenes and then these opposing scenes of just life in Delhi. And they're so evocative. Did you have a favorite? Because I know I have several. My absolute favorite. There's this beautiful shot that is looking up through the infrastructure of the city as they drive around the streets of Delhi. And it reminded me of something that I heard R. Crumb say literally decades ago about how he practiced for a long time on drawing the things that other people left out of their illustrations, like power lines. And you see that very much on display here, taking in all these details that people don't traditionally think of as beautiful but I think are really necessary to understand what it feels like to be there. So I feel like that shot is clearly celebrating those specific details. That was my absolute favorite bit of non-wedding aesthetics. But all of it's great. I think second place for me would be where they are sari shopping and the colors and craftsmanship of all these garments they have laid out everywhere is so beautiful. I love speaking of astutely making comments on class structures when we're on the golf course as Lalit is asking for money and the women in the saris walk by with the pots on their heads. Then I think my number one favorite, that's when Dubey comes home and his mother is yelling at him and he goes out onto the terrace to watch the lights of Delhi from his flat. I see what you mean. I think of that as being maybe a little similar to that scene in A Room with a View where Cecil is tying his shoes. It's his moment to be alone and breathe and be a human being. Well, as you mentioned, the men rise to the occasion and Lalit sends Tej away permanently from the family. The big rains come, the wedding garlands are donned, and let's dance. 
Now, with the sheer amount of music and dancing, this could be a musical. Roger Ebert thought so. He said because the dancing came from a more, quote-unquote, logical place. To me, that seems like a knock on Bollywood. It seems to imply that the Hollywood version is better somehow. What do you think? Well, I didn't see exactly what he said, but that reads to me like it may just be a knock on the convention of musicals in general. I could see myself, for example, saying something similar, and it would have nothing to do with Bollywood versus Hollywood. It would be more about having similar reservations about musicals in general when I was younger and the artificiality of breaking into song or elaborate production numbers that didn't make sense or appeal to me then. But I come to learn and realize and appreciate they are both their own distinct thing and they require an equal suspension of disbelief. For me, I think it just denies the very nature of a wedding ceremony or many Indian ceremonies themselves. They're all about music and dancing. I mean, the Sangeet means music. There's no better vessel for music and dancing to me. Then are you sad that we don't go to weddings? Do you miss that? No, I miss music and dancing. I do not miss them in a wedding format. Well, you talked about favorite shots on the streets of Delhi. I did want to say I do have a couple of favorite characters, too. I think Alice, the servant... And then especially the little sister who thinks it's so funny that she saw everyone naked. Those are my two absolute favorite characters. <laughs> I like the younger son who really just wants to get his dang choreography down. And then sexy auntie who just wants to get busy all the time. Well, I said this before. The simplicity of some of the ideas expressed are really what hit home for me. Those may be... The thing you asked about, my way in. I didn't know that I was going to find those necessarily, and I'm so glad they're there. The thing that made this whole thing worthwhile, even if I didn't enjoy any of the rest of it, which is not the case, I enjoyed it a great deal. I love the simplicity of the blessing at the wedding so much. He just says, be happy. Oh my gosh, I had completely forgotten about that until you said that. Yeah, you strip away all the overblown things and the expensive things and only doing it because that's how it's done part of things. And this beautiful sentiment is what you have left to carry with you. I am so pleased as a viewer that she was so smart to put this in here at this most pivotal point. Well, that's the film. But before we go, I actually have a slew of questions for you. I do. Thanks, honey. <laughs> well, speaking of romance, IndieWire named this the number one best romance of the 21st century. Now, we often talk about what makes something romantic or not, and how many films that are supposed to be romantic are just not. Did this pass the romance test for you? Only in a couple of small ways. One I already mentioned in how our couple already had a moment that tested them, that they responded to honestly and reasonably and took the risk anyway. I think that's a wonderful romantic moment. The other is something that you talked about a little bit here too. The evidence of how much it stirs up or rekindles those feelings in the other older couples or attendees. Is it a universal thing that has just escaped me this whole time that weddings get people all horned up? Duh, doy, yes. Okay, that is we'll, a thing. Maybe we'll have to start going to these after all. Do you not remember in Parks and Rec when Tom said, uh, I am a groomsman, so that means that I'm going to have sex with the best looking bridesmaid, probably from behind. <laughs> I don't remember that, but okay. 
But I don't think of this overall as the romantic heavyweight champion, number one on a list, for example. Because to me, the overwhelming feeling has much more to do with familial love and service. It's a nice touch that we even see at the end, everyone's celebrations being incorporated. Even the servant class, even the person that's working for you. And that only underscores what I'm saying. Everyone on this blessed day is basically part of the family. So I think it's maybe 25% romance for me, 75% family devotion. Got it. Well, Miranir talked about the kind of story that she and her screenwriter wanted it to be. They wanted it to be about all different kinds of love. One she calls old shoe love. We see that with the parents, with auntie and uncle. It's a deep love, but it's sometimes neglectful, as she says. And the Dubay and Alice plot, that is for sure a romance, big time. That's swoony romance. Also, everyone is gorgeous. They make out in the rain. I mean, it looks beautiful. I like that Aditi and Hemet come to each other together on their own terms. That feels like some true romance when it seems like they can't wait to touch each other. That's pretty fun. And like you said, there's this sexy vibe running throughout the whole thing. Okay, so maybe I'll move my needle to 50-50. Sounds good. P.S. I looked at that list from IndieWire that you talked about, and it has In the Mood for Love at number four instead of at the top spot, which is insane. Yeah, I looked at the list too, and it's kind of bananas, especially towards the bottom. It seemed like they should just have cut it off at maybe, I don't know, 17. In the Mood for Love almost turns longing into a literal, physical, tangible object before your very eyes. But there are some great choices in that top part of the list, I will say. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Carol, Brokeback Mountain, all of those are some of my favorites. I know you are particularly fond of the number two spot that before Trilogy is in there. Would that be your number one? Gosh, I don't know. It seems great as number two. I'm not sure what I would replace it with. That seems like a solid one for me. And much like this too, so many stages of love in that. So it was Miranair's intention to make this big, populous style film like Bollywood, but that captured a wedding in a more realistic way. Do you think she was able to do that? Yeah, I think this is an absolute success and that she did exactly what she set out to do. It's big and raucous and fun. It hits all those feel-good beats that are crowd-pleasing. And she asks a lot of hard social questions and opens up a familial can of worms that is harboring some very dark secrets, all without scuttling the joyous momentum. I think she did great too. And she also said she wanted to make it experimental. She wanted to be visually inventive, do things that she hadn't done before. And that leads me to another question for you. We see distinctly some different styles of acting. We've got some very experienced actors and some non-professionals. How did you feel about that? Before we move away from the technical aspect of what you're talking about, the camera work in this thing is incredible. It puts you right in there without feeling like it's too much. And there is a lot going on, so it would be easy to be overwhelmed by it. But the economy of the movement within those spaces, beautiful. As far as the acting, you know me, I love non-professionals. Yeah, I figured this would be kind of a no-brainer, but I do have an opinion about it too. I do too, one specific one. One special thing I wanted to note, she got great kid-like performances out of the children. Sometimes in these sorts of films, 
The kids are too much like miniature sassy adults. But these adolescents and younger children in the film, they can be petulant and impatient or bored with all this adult business and still be adorable, but not in a saccharine way. It's all very real. And overall, I think it basically played out that everyone's acting experience level matched the maturity or experience level of their character. So it felt very natural and appropriate. I have to admit, at the very beginning, I was a little bit put off. But as each moment went on, I felt like I was in the best possible hands. And at this point, I wouldn't change anything. Put off by what? Did you feel it was too broad maybe to start with? I did. The very, very, very beginning was a little broad for me. I thought, gosh, is this going to be the tenor throughout? Am I going to see these deeper emotions expressed in a slightly more real way to me? Well, something that you mentioned earlier, I kind of want to revisit a bit. You talked about giving films from other cultures maybe a bit more leeway. So what do you think about certain films set in India but made by Westerners? I'm specifically thinking about Slumdog Millionaire or The Marigold Hotel. I swing the opposite way. I've never seen either of those, so maybe that answer tips my hand about the reservations I have. I give those far less leeway, I feel like. Even with it having the excuse of clearly being homage, The Darjeeling Limited is far and away my least favorite Wes Anderson film, for example. You can do it. I'm not saying it's impossible to get right, but it will be a hard needle to thread without seeming like pandering, appropriation, or cinematic colonialism to a degree. Now, I've seen Slumdog, and I saw Hideous Kinky a few years ago as well. I like Hideous Kinky. I do too. I would say just in general these days, I'd rather experience something made by the people who experienced it as much as possible. Less with Westerners experiencing cultures that are not their own. Now, you expressly stated this earlier, and I was actually feeling the same way going in. I wasn't really in the mood for this film either, but both of us are so glad that we watched. To me, that's an aspect of what we call a feel-good film. Something you're not in the mood for that makes you feel something. What about you? What makes a feel-good film is this one... Do you generally like those kinds of movies? Okay, buckle in for this one. Okay. very glad, actually, that you made this selection for a couple of reasons. One, it made me watch it when I might have otherwise not. And two, it really gets us to this spot where we can talk about not just the movie itself and its individual merits, but about how and why we watch movies in general, which is always fun to talk about. Feel-good movies, quote-unquote, are not my thing. And I can hear everyone's internal monologue out there. Don't you like to feel good? That's just it. They don't make me feel good. They're usually too lazily or shoddily made to feel good about. There's so much low-hanging fruit. And I don't know many more abhorrent phrases to me than turn your brain off and enjoy it. If you say that to me, you simply don't know me. If you say that to me, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say... I am more willing to try things described as feel-good now than previously in my life, probably. But at first blush, they hold no appeal, and they don't spark my curiosity. Something similar to this, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, or maybe even better, Mamma Mia, for instance. Aside from the pure pop perfection of ABBA, which is a powerful force that I really enjoy, I really don't have any interest in seeing that movie. I would rather just listen to the records than watch a jukebox musical, for example. And what it comes down to basically is that these things typically just aren't for me, and that's fine. 
I wondered if you were going to mention my big fat Greek wedding and all of this. Yeah, there are probably a lot of things that could fall under this umbrella that you would think of that might be cousins to this movie. But those things that we've talked about along the way that Miranair does here, that gives this a much deeper meaning and deals with a lot more complicated issues, I feel like it sets it apart. Although I may be surprised and find those things in those films too, because I wasn't necessarily expecting it here. Actually, that just made me think I should have used this for my recommendation, Cousins. I I love love that movie. That's a great wedding movie. I'll tell you what all this made me think of. The way music has changed. When we go to HEB or Walgreens or wherever, the music that's played over the PA has shifted over time from the canned music of my youth to actual popular songs, sometimes very recent. So when you, Erica, walk in there, what are the chances that you're going to hear a song that you really like? It happens at least occasionally, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Marshall Crenshaw is in rotation for one of those mixes. Now, how often do you think I walk into the grocery store and hear one of my very favorite songs? Zero to no chances. Less than zero. Yeah, you don't have shellac or unsane in the old Jewel Osco. And I don't mean this in any sort of woe is me way, but there is a cumulative psychological effect of things like that. Never getting the thing that you like when everyone else is. The inescapable reach of religion so much that it's on every piece of currency that passes through our hands, the way the culture at large embraces alcohol. It didn't take me long to figure out in my life that the things and ideas that make me feel good won't be regularly served up in the public square. So that leads to two results. I don't trust very much with this feel-good appellation, and I just go in search of things that do make me feel good. So here are some of my favorite feel-good movies. I was going to say, I know there are a ton of them. Yeah, Two Years at Sea. You know that's my... New Year's Day viewing tradition because of the peacefulness and the isolation and the quiet. Another great wedding movie, The In-Laws. Nothing makes me laugh harder. yeah. Anything with W.C. Fields in it. Bonbon El Perro because I'm a sucker for great dog movies. True Stories. My Neighbor Totoro. All of those make me feel good and glad to be alive. And I think the common denominator, what makes a feel-good movie for me, is probably ingenuity and heart in equal measure. I just don't want things to be easy. That just makes me feel like I haven't earned anything. Well, I think you nailed it with those words, ingenuity and heart. And that's what Miranair specializes in in this film, even though she didn't write it. And that's an important distinction, because how would you ultimately characterize her as a director? She has said she chose directing over any other art form because it was collaborative She says, I like to work with people, and my strength, if any, is that. That's why I'm neither a photographer nor writer. Well, her dedication at the end of the film points the way to the answer for me. For my family, you already brought that up. Not just with this, but her filmmaking in general certainly seems to be very personal for her. I think she's exceptional at communicating character in small bites, She's equally adept at telling stories from either side of this divide, whether it's the plight of the marginalized or delving into her own privileged middle-class roots. She's always pushing boundaries in India with her examination of sexual issues of all kinds, whether it's the adultery and pedophilia here, the eroticism of Kama Sutra, or the complicated sexual and gender politics of some of her documentary work. I read something that really struck me. She said she makes films in India, lives in Africa, and thinks in English. So it makes 
perfect sense to me that she makes films for a global audience. But more important than that, for me, is that it makes me think of her as kind of a perennial outsider. And I think that gives a person a very specific curiosity about the world. And that's what I think I respond to most in her work. Something else she said that I really responded to, she approaches directing with the heart of a poet and the skin of an elephant. And so I think that that's what I feel here, how you can make such a big impact on a small budget, how you can get the best from actors and non-actors, protect your own creative vision, and tell the story that is from you. And I think she makes us feel like we're in on the fun. Everything breathes here. None of it feels oppressive, even though, like we talked about earlier, there's so much going on. And that feeling like I'm in on the fun when she also says at the end, shot in 40 locations, 30 days, exactly and approximately. Well, I just have to reiterate, thanks for picking it, because I really don't know when, if I would have ever gotten to it, but it was a really fun and thoughtful time at the movies. Ditto here. I'm so glad you watched it with me. So do you have a recommendation? Well, I was casting about from my favorite wedding movie. And I really do think that's probably the in-laws, but the wedding part of that is a very small part. So I was looking at lists, knowing that the things that I like probably weren't going to be on there, like I was saying before. And I came away perplexed, actually. How many of these kinds of movies is Julia Roberts in? All of them. Yeah. And if she's not, it's going to be Reese Witherspoon, I guess? That's exactly the impression I got. You throw in Jennifer Lopez and Anne Hathaway, and I literally think no one else is allowed to make these movies. It's bananas. All the posters start to blend together. It's exhausting, just like the weddings themselves. Anyway, you mentioned Robert Altman before, and I chose his film, A Wedding, from 1978. It stars Desi Arnaz Jr., Amy Stryker, Carol Burnett, Lantern favorite Geraldine Chaplin, Mia Farrow, Howard Duff, Lillian Gish, and many others. And it's about the marriage of the daughter of a Louisville truck driver and the scion of a very wealthy family and the disaster of a reception that follows. It even has a few tangential ways to tie it to this film. The wedding setting, obviously. The class considerations, this time it's old money, new money. There's even a weird hint of incestuous behavior here. And it has all those multiple threads working like we talked about. But in true Altman form, with this ambiguous intertwining and overlapping dialogue, This may only really be for Altman fans, I'm not sure, but if that's you and you haven't seen this, then you are in for a treat. I'm also going to steal a page out of your book and do an honorable mention this time. How dare you? (laughs) I really like The Wedding Singer. It is so sweet and funny, and it exactly nails the modest things it's trying to do. What about you? Well, and also Drew Barrymore should be in every movie, as far as I'm concerned. Oh my god. Okay, now, Cole. Did you know that it is the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife? That sounds a little dubious, but I'll go with it for this purpose. Well, you do know because Jane Austen told us, so we know it's got to be real. I picked my favorite adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which in a sense is all about how marriage and the preparations for it can smother and break a family. So I present to you Pride and Prejudice from 2005, directed by Joe Wright with Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden, Brenda Blethyn, Donald Sutherland, Tom Hollander, Rosamund Pike, Carrie Mulligan, Gina Malone, and Judy Dench. And it is all true what they say. The Bennets are in possession of five daughters and an entailed fortune that they won't inherit. So everyone must get married. 
Well, I won't belabor the plot otherwise because we probably know it. I just like this production so much because it is full of natural light. It's an outdoorsy Pride and Prejudice. And when you're in the Bennett home, you understand what is at stake here. And the language is intact and celebrated even. And the romance feels earned and real. I just adore this one. So once again, that's two great recommendations, A Wedding and Pride and Prejudice. And that brings us to the end of episode 156. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, over a hundred of them by now, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time, especially Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast and Mike Scharf. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find us on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>